0: Hello, I'm Sabrina Johnson. Welcome to Listen Up, Listen In, conversations with uplifters, igniters, healers, and joymakers. In May 2022, I graduated from Claremont School of Theology with a Master of Divinity. And just as when I first started this graduate program in 2018, I had no idea what I was going to do with my degree. So I looked around me at people who I saw were ministering to the world in ways that uplifted me, ignited me with their passion for serving, inspired me to join in the healing, and gave me joy as I witnessed and experienced the bodacious love they lavished upon the world around them. I wanted to ask them about their path, their mission, their passion to serve and better the world. I imagined this would take place in the way of informational interviews, over cups of coffee or tea. But there were so many people I wanted to interview with so many questions, and all but a few were local to where I live in Prescott, Arizona, having recently moved from Los Angeles a year ago. It was from this desire that Listen Up, Listen In came to be. I believe we each have our own unique, divinely given gifts and talents that we can share with others to uplift, ignite, heal, and give joy. And so the list is endless of guests that I want to interview. My hope is that as we all listen up to hear what they say, we also listen in to hear what our own heart tells us, guides us, moves us to do as we come together to realize the truth that we are all interdependent and interconnected by a higher good that loves us into being our best for ourselves and others. Thank you for joining me in this conversation as we listen up, listen in with open minds and open hearts. I first met Shonda Ja in 2018 when I was a student at Claremont School of Theology. They were a guest speaker for my cultural competencies class. Shonda taught us about intersectionalities, which are social categories such as race, class, gender, that are most often used as a means to discriminate against others and put them at a disadvantage. They had us create our own individual intersectionality maps. This was a most enlightening experience for me, for it revealed how much of my history that I'd inherited from my ancestors shaped and formed many of my beliefs and life choices. A few years later, I created and facilitated a diversity class for my church and asked Shonda to be a guest speaker. The feedback from the class was that they could have heard them speak all day, for they were tremendously engaging in how they presented new information. I hope you also find my conversation with Shonda to be engaging, informative, and enlightening. In their new podcast entitled Their Wildest Dreams, Shonda Ja describes themselves as a community organizer, anti-oppression consultant, and author of their newest book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. This is Shonda's fifth book with Chalice Press, which also sponsors their podcasts. Their fourth book, Liberating Love Daily Devotional, 365 Love Notes from God, which I have on my daily reading stand, is for everyone, for they are notes of God's love in dialogue with biblical passages, letting us all know that we are all included in the world that God has built for us, with and for compassion and justice. Shonda speaks and writes clearly to this theological reality. For they are also a disciples of Christ minister. There is so much more to know about my guest Shonda Jaw, who is truly an uplifter and igniter. But I'll stop here so that we can go into our listen up, listen in conversation. So welcome, Shonda. I'm so excited I that am you're here.
1: So thrilled to get to see. I mean, it's in large part, just a great excuse to get to see you again. So I'm thrilled.
0: Well, I'm so happy that you took the time because I know you have a lot going on. And um, I don't know, I was kind of thinking, where do we start? Because one of the things that really intrigued me is that now you, because I remember when you first uh, spoke at my class, that you, I believe at that time you were, Still somewhat involved with the Oakland Peace Center?
1: I was still the executive director,
0: yeah, through the first year of the
1: pandemic, yeah.
0: And then um, you did the um, the devotional book, which is beautiful. Right. I read that every day, and I love it. And now you're doing this uh, podcast from your book, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, which is about ancestor. And yet all of these, I would say, go back to community yeah absolutely is is that the thread that runs through all this it's actually true
1: it's the thread that runs through all of my books it's the thread that runs through the three podcasts I'm a part of and it's well yeah it's too much
0: uh (laughs) and and it's the thread that runs through my life absolutely yeah yeah because I was kind of thinking about it and I know for me I always say um as much as many times I struggle with it in my church communities and different communities Mm -hmm. community is healing. Yeah. I always say that, that when you get together, there's just always a healing because it reveals really who we are when we interact the truth of who we are. So I guess seeing that thread, could you tell, I know a little bit, but just for the people that are listening that are, are not familiar with your work, could you tell us about, first of all, uh, I think it was your third book, the one that we read for cultural competencies. Transforming Communities. Yes. Could you tell us Mm -hmm. about that? Um, I think when was, when did you write that book? That one came out uh, in
1: late 2016, early 2017, sometime around then. I remember I was writing it during the 2016 election uh, because I was talking with my parent's friend, about the fact that depending on who won the election, it was going to be a really important book because it was about organizing for community change and how that could shape our national future. And he said, actually, regardless of who wins, it's -hmm. going to be an important book. And I thought that was such a beautiful way of framing it because sometimes we're organizing responsively but we should always be organizing to build a better world together so i loved that reframing on his part uh, but it did end up being pretty important because i think a lot of people were feeling very despondent
0: mm-hmm.
1: and to be reminded that even in the face of very difficult odds people are affecting real palpable change that is making people's lives better and that it's regular people coming together as community not some brilliant experts not some superhero my hope is now I grew up playing superheroes it was my favorite (laughs) game to play anytime I got to choose what we played it was superheroes but as I look back on it I realize it was the idea of the collective that mattered to me rather than, you know, the supernatural powers weren't the exciting part for me. Um, And so I think we should be in a post superhero singular era where we're waiting for that person to rescue us and into a, we are collectively the superheroes
0: we've been waiting for. I love that. I love that. I really, I love that because that's such a um, has such a resonance of, unification, which I really pray for on a daily basis. I, um, when you talked about the election and, uh, community and I, I thought, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, how many people felt, felt excluded. Yeah. And I would even go so far, uh, in my prayers and in my journalings, I believe the people that voted for Trump feel excluded too, I think, or else they wouldn't have, felt such an, uh, adamant, uh, passion. Yeah. And so I think it's this exclusion that goes across the board, no matter how they identify or they don't identify. And so when you talk about that, we are collective, that really is powerful. And it's even more powerful now that I get the aha about the ancestors because the ancestors right. are part of our collective.
1: That's right. We're not alone. Yeah. And What's also I find very encouraging is knowing that people who came before me went through very hard things and did powerful transformative things. I think so in Transforming Communities, which I didn't realize I was writing as a kind of a prequel to uh, Rebels, Despots and Saints, the first story and the last story are historic stories. One of them is from fascist Spain. And one of them is from the Vichy era in France, uh, which were, both were participants with the Nazi uh, regime, right? Right. And it's about people resisting. And ultimately, all these years later, we know they won. Yes. But at the time, they didn't know whether they were going to. All they knew was they needed to do what was good and right and do it with each other.
0: Can, can you briefly tell that story that you start the book with of the baker in Spain? Yes. I love that story.
1: Yes. So yeah, one. it's funny because my favorite bakery in Oakland is Arismendi Bakery, yeah. and it's a worker-owned collective. And it was years later that I discovered it was named after Father Arismendi Areta in Spain. Uh, he was from the Basque region of Spain. He had been a journalist during the rise of Franco- uh, who was a fascist dictator, and because he was opposed to fascism, the that regime hated him. He was he became a priest and got sent to the Basque region, which had also resisted, uh, had also resisted fascism, which was why the Franco regime wouldn't give them funding in post-war Spain. Yeah. So it was really hard to live in that region. He ends up, and the thing I love about him is he's the perfect anti-hero. Well, I shouldn't say anti-hero. He's not bad, but he's he's the most unlikely hero of a story because he's really lousy in front of a crowd, right? You want a priest who can tell a good story and give a good sermon or homily, and he was not good at that, but also he wasn't good in small groups either. He was very uncharismatic. He was a social scientist, but he was not in any way, shape, or form a charismatic figure. The people in his church reached out to the bishop and said, could you send us someone else? This guy's a dud. But in this area that has had federal funding withheld from them, is dealing with the post-war economy, is struggling deeply. He ends up getting to know some of the youth in the community and they're working doing you know building things for uh for various companies and he says to them hey you all have some really good skills like electrical skills construction skills what if you all were the ones that ran the company and that way all of the money would stay with you now That seemed like a simple idea, but in many ways, he's considered the father of the cooperative business movement. Cooperative businesses are the ones where the workers are also the owners, like Arismendi Bakery, which is Mm. why they named it for him. And what he started, along with the youth in that community, is now the Mondragon Corporation, the largest employer in Spain. (laughs) And it's still a worker-owned cooperative. People from all over the world go there to learn from what they're doing. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. And to think that he was – I love that. I I think that's why – I know I I remembered it, and I don't know why, but when you said he was not exactly charismatic. Yes. (laughs) And I always – and for me, you know, it's like – I I say to people, I say, well, you know, so-and-so, the minister, she says, hello, and it sounds like all of Shakespeare's (laughs) dialogues or monologues, and I go, hello, and I kind of, you know, it's like, I go, I could never work up to that, and it's like, I'm not supposed to be that, and I get that. We're not, I'm not supposed to be that actress that is now a wonderful minister. I'm not supposed to be that actor who's a wonderful minister. I am who I am, and that's the gift that we bring forth is our own, you know, like we can be the uh, the best that we can be, you know, it's like Exactly. Our own, our, we can only be our, our was it, uh, somebody says, Nike, uh, just do it. Someone says, just do you. I love just, it. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. One of the ministers here, uh, says that in our, in our denomination. So, um, what I was going to ask you though was, or not ask you, but just have you talk about, so in 2016, you're writing this book about transforming communities. Mm -hmm. And now I think we kind of get an idea. It's kind of become a little bit more broadcast in social media, where we understand that it it doesn't work for people to come from the outside into communities and say, this is how we're going to fix you. So Only now, when we're talking basically six years later or seven years later, are people beginning to get a glimpse that this may not be the way to better communities and Mm -hmm. to help them. Mm -hmm. So you were kind of a pioneer in bringing that and saying, this is what you do. You ask people what they need because they know. And not just what they need. One
1: of my favorite tools in any community work, I can't remember if we talked about it in that class, but, but it's called asset-based community development and it's a model that goes back to the 90s uh, that I, it probably predates that i came across it in the early 2000s and the idea of asset-based community development it's funny because now there are huge textbooks written on it, and everybody who gets a social work degree everybody who gets a public health degree gets trained in this methodology And it's funny because they think it's a formal methodology that you have to be thoroughly trained and have a master's degree in to implement. But the origin story of it was basically people from a poor dispossessed community saying, you know what, for like 40 years, people have been coming in here from outside and telling us what's wrong with us. What if instead we get together and figure out what's right with us Mm. and build from that, Mm. right? And I love that because I think it's not, Uh, it's not just more effective it's also a form of resistance yes because the negative the negative stories that get told about communities also get internalized by communities as if it's our fault that the government stopped investing in us as if it's our fault that we you know that our ancestors were enslaved or colonized or whatever as if it's our fault that we have been shaped by millennia of oppressive versions of sexism that have created trauma, all of those things um, often get blamed on the people who were harmed in the first place. And so what I love about asset-based community development is saying, you know what? A, we are more than our trauma. B, we are the experts in us. And C, we know if we get together, we know what we need and what we can build on that's beautiful. Mm. So I love asset-based community development as a model. And I really, I really love that it is a little bit radical, um, especially for communities that have been told, sometimes for generations, that
0: all they are is their needs. Exactly. And thank you for saying that. Like, as, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about On the individual level as a um, metaphysical practitioner that we are taught, we are trained that when, you know, like early on uh, in 2007, it was going to see a a beautiful woman in uh, urgent care who had had three heart attacks in a row. Wow. And looking at her, and it was like you see beyond the condition, beyond the appearance to the wholeness, the absolute spiritual truth of that person, which is that they are holy and holy,
1: H O L Y yes.
0: and H-O-L-L-Y. And yes. it was very easy because she was wearing this beautiful pink feather boa that someone given her and somehow they Yay! allowed her to wear but uh, that was an easy one but sometimes it's not so easy but that's I'm, i was thinking as the individual that's how we heal we don't heal by saying oh i'm too fat i'm too old i'm too this it's like right no look at i i have the strength that got me you know through this i have this age that and wisdom and so we have our assets that we develop but we can only develop them if others help us see the truth of ourselves. Right. Right. Yes. And to be the
1: mirror for each other mm-hmm. because sometimes we're least kind to ourselves. Exactly. Um, so for us to be able to say, I see you. Yes. You are glorious.
0: And that's I think that matters. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're doing with community. And yeah. that's what makes it so radical in many ways because i think yeah. as a society we tend to kind of go well you know i, I let's just face the truth or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Like, go into these facts and it's like that's what we tend to do and it's more of like a spiritual point of view without being spiritual it's very secular saying look these are your human will strengths and we're gonna yep. build on this
1: yep exactly exactly You know It's fun because the other thing I love about asset-based community development is getting a group of people together and saying, I love one of the easiest entry points, which is to say to folks, if I were visiting your neighborhood, what are some of the things you'd want to show me? Mm. Because people aren't going to say, I'd want to show you the potholes, I'd want to show you the way that infrastructure is collapsing, even though those are the kinds of things we complain about. If you ask them that question, they say, Oh my gosh, my neighbor has turned his garage into a little art studio. You can drop in on weekends and see the art. I have a cousin who's turned her backyard, or her front yard, into a community garden we have this guy he's super quirky and he does this that and the other we love i'm thinking in the castro in san francisco there's a guy that everyone in san francisco knows as naked guy because he shows up naked and it's so san francisco they have legislation that you have to have a covering to sit on the bus if you're unclothed not that you're technically allowed to be unclothed on the bus but they want to make sure he can ride the bus and they also don't want his butt cheeks on the bus seats i love the fact that the community is so invested in him that they have this special clause that's really pretty much just for him um so like i i think Isn't all of us wonderful? have delightful quirky interesting folks and things and personality traits that we actually love to show off um and that's a great foundational thing to do if you want to do asset-based community development. What is it we love? And the sneaky way of getting at that is what would we want to show off to a visitor?
0: I love that. I love that they have legislation just for this. I know. I love it for Naked Man. Naked Man legislation. And talking about community, you get to hear my little dog saying something. So, yeah, when you said that, I thought about how years ago and as a child – I lived in Newport Beach and when we go to Laguna Beach, yeah, there was this man who was called the greeter.
1: And he oh. would stand
0: in front of this pottery shop and he would literally greet people as they drove down Pacific Coast Highway. Yep. And I now look back and I think he probably was homeless or close to homeless and but he had this he knew that he knew how to greet people. And yes. everyone made sure that they got to see the greeter, because he would yeah. welcome everyone into town. And I yep. thought, wouldn't that be great to have a town that just has a greeter just saying, here you are, we're welcoming you, we're saying hello to you. Yes, that would be like, awesome. I love that. So, so uh, with community, now you go from community, and you expand your community into our ancestors. Mm -hmm. it's already there but you're expanding our consciousness to include our ancestors why is that important
1: yeah I think for me it was you know I
0: hate to admit but because I'm a
1: community organizer everything I do has a pragmatic element to it Mm -hmm. and since I've been working in Oakland California for about 17 years now um I noticed over the years that the folks who seemed to be able to stay in the work for longest were the ones who had practices to acknowledge their ancestors. Now, in Oakland, a lot of our organizing happens by immigrant and refugee and African-American and indigenous communities. And so there's a little bit more comfort with uh, talking about ancestors. And there's been reclamation work, right, Uh, to do that. So it was not...
0: uh, just a bit the reclamation yeah
1: absolutely and so i think i think about the ways in which often uh christianity in its colonizing or enslaving forms took away ancestors because an- because having connections to ancestors was empowering right mm. and so the colonizing or enslaving versions of christianity often said to converts Um, or people who are forced into the religion, depending, Um, you know, the Bible says you should have no gods before God. And therefore, all of this stuff where you have altars, and you talk to your ancestors, and you offer them food, that's idol worship, and it's satanic, or it's at least Anti-Christian, mm. you have to get rid of all of that. Oh wow! Um, and so that's a message that a lot of my Korean American friends learned. A lot of my African American friends learned. Uh, a lot of my Vietnamese American friends learned. A lot of immigrants, refugees, and inheritors of enslavement—black uh, uh, people who were whose ancestors were forced here—were or black people who. Uh, who experienced colonization, right, who uh, were in Africa, were given messages that it was evil and passed that down generation by generation, that it is evil, that the non-Christians in your family who continue to light incense to the ancestors are on the path to hell, right? Mm -hmm. That message got uh, passed down generation by generation. Now, I'm not an expert in this arena, but I do a lot of anti-racism work. So I've come across quite a bit uh, around this, particularly in the 70s. A lot of Black liberation work, a lot of uh, Afro, uh, uh, sorry, I was going to say a lot of um, um, Afrocentric organizing in the 70s included reclaiming of ancestral practices Mm, and mm -hmm. rejection of a white version of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was rejection of Christianity altogether. And sometimes it was conversion to Islam because that had been one of the religions of their ancestors, or even uh, reclaiming of Yoruba or Ifa or other indigenous African religions. And Even among Black Christians who were kind of radical Black activists, Mm -hmm. there was the decolonizing of Christianity that said the practices of our ancestors were meaningful. The fact that uh, drumming, rhythmic preaching, all of those things is in the Black church tradition is because... It was the way we carried our ancestors with their drawing practices, with their rhythmic speaking, with their circle rituals into our religion, even though the white enslavers tried to take it away from us. We were able to preserve it in these ways, and now we're going to proclaim it publicly. So some of those things would be things like the pouring of libations, Mm -hmm. um, which, which is a way of uh, giving to the ancestors nourishment while acknowledging them. Uh, and it's interesting because that practice, which is not just, uh, from various religions in Africa, it's also practiced in a lot of indigenous Central and South American religions. Um, and what's particularly interesting is I think without, re- not always realizing it, um, a lot of the folks I've worked with who, if they lost someone in the streets, if they lost someone they loved, um, they would pour out, uh, you know, a bottle of malt liquor on the grave, or they would. I've been to veterans' graves where there are bottles of Corona or whatever mm-hmm. on the grave, because I think some of us have intuited our way into. They they call call it pouring out one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's its own form of pouring libations of honoring someone who is now an ancestor. So uh, in a lot of in a lot of spaces in organizing in Oakland, I would see people engaging in setting up an altar, an altar with images of those who had gone before who would give us strength. Right. That's a very significant Latin American practice, although I resonated with it because it is a very common practice in Hinduism as well. My father was Hindu. um, And so my family in India uh, always pay homage to our ancestors. Uh, and so that was a familiar ritual to me, right? Or um, lighting incense to to honor the dead, uh, which often shows up in South Asian, but Southeast Asian and East Asian religions and cultures. So there was something about honoring those who had gone before us, sometimes the ones who we had lost unjustly. So the naming of the names of everybody who had been killed due to police violence is a way of honoring ancestors as well as holding the people uh, who have done the harm culpable. It's both and, but also there was often the naming of ancestors who had done hard work in the past that could encourage and support us. People like Ella Baker or um, Cesar Chavez or Dolores Huerta. Um, For me, Larry Itliong because I am a big union and labor uh, organ- activist, um, and Larry Itliong is the undersung uh, Filipino union leader who oh. introduced Cesar Chavez to the work of formalized organizing. It was called the United Farm Workers because the Filipino farmers uh, joined in solidarity with the Latino farmers, right? And oh. so uh, Larry Itliong was profoundly secular. He was a little creeped out by Cesar Chavez's spirituality, but he's like, but we're on the same side. We're trying to do the same thing. Um, Having those stories, having those, um, and it doesn't hurt that Larry at Leong is a very attractive man, was a very attractive man. So uh, he he holds up well on a mural. That doesn't hurt.
0: So yeah, I love knowing these ancestors, right? I I love learning something new. I love that. That's like, so- Hearing this, and I'm hearing like the, and first of all, I'm very comfortable. <laughs> I think coming from the metaphysical point of view, it's like right. knowing that, it's like really, we we leave our body, but our spirit has always been here, will always be here. Yeah. So I have that connection. Yeah. And I really believe in that. And it, it does empower me. It really does. Right. It makes me feel, um I know when I wake up at 3 a.m., it's usually my great grandmother, because she would wake up at 3 a.m. and have yeah. these Yeah. And um, so I, I really believe in that, and I know that um, there is that strong connection. And uh, it, it has definitely helped me, because basically uh, my story is that I wasn't an orphan from 16 on. So I had these uh, three women, my mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, who supported me and continue to support me. So I definitely relate to that. I understand that. And just one note is that when I shared this in a class at Claremont, Uh, it's not just, uh, I would say, people of color or Mm -hmm. non-white that have been told that this is not necessarily, that this is a, how do I say it, Satan, devil, I don't know, devil worship. Mm -hmm. Because I remember when I talked about this for a class, a presentation, somebody said, uh, who was identified as white, said, this would have been considered, like, you don't do this. You don't. Oh talk. yeah. And I didn't realize that. I just <laughs> felt like, yeah, I don't I understand. I've learned a lot about mainline Christianity at Claremont, but I didn't understand this. So I think we were yeah. all cut off from our answers. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. And yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think in the, in the book, rebels, despots, and saints, I talk about one of the costs of whiteness. Uh, We, we sometimes think of other, you know, people of color being the races, um, but the first race that was created in the modern world was white, uh, against which everything else was defined, right? Um, Because before the 1600s, yeah, an English person might look down on uh, a Nigerian person. They would also look down on a Greek person. They would also look down on a French person. I mean, the English still look down on the French people, but there's some history there that I think contextualizes it. Um, so before the 1600s, you know, a Greek person thought they were superior to a Norwegian person or whatever, right? And so in the construction of whiteness and in saying who was in it and who was out of it, If you were in whiteness, if you were part of all of the perks of being white, there were costs that came with it. Um, They were not the same costs that people of color bore, um, which were economic, which were uh, violent, which were uh, all sorts of horrific things. But one of the costs of whiteness was you lost your ancestors. Um, and I think that's devastating,
0: right? Because they were no longer Norwegian, they were no longer yep. Greek, they were no longer yep. German, they were, yep. they were white, lowercase exactly, lowercase white. To, yeah. Exactly, and it's and it's, uh, I, not everyone realizes that, you know, it was, mm-hmm. but, but it is, it is a construction that came to yeah. enable slavery mm-hmm. and empowerment. Um, so, uh, I really want to. This is what came to me uh, while I was preparing for you is how do we bring this empowerment of community of ancestors of um, helping our ancestors, our ancestors helping us. How do we bring this to the heartbreaking headlines, the heartbreaking events, not headlines. They're not headlines. They're events. How do we bring these heartbreaking events that happen How do we bring this power of community, of ancestry that we claim or reclaim, how do we bring this to help stop this? I mean, it's just, I think we're all feeling, I don't care what the color is, I think either we're determined not to feel because it's too painful to feel, yeah. so we go to... A place of privilege of not feeling, but that's just not privilege. That's just not feeling, right? Or we go to a place of feeling so heartbroken or anger. How do, how do we bring the work that you're doing into action?
1: I love that question, and I feel like I have two answers to that. The but the the first thing I want to start with is, you know, it's interesting. I was doing an anti-racism workshop for a church. Uh, And I work with nonprofits, institutions of higher education. I also work with a lot of religious organizations, interfaith and otherwise. So I was working with a church and I was doing a three-hour anti-racism training. And one of the exercises is I put uh, down pieces of American history, U.S. history related to race. And at one point, I invite people to pick up one of the pieces of paper that I've put on the floor from a piece of history they didn't already know. Mm -hmm. and to spend some time learning about it I've got history information on the back of the paper and then to share with the other people at the table what they've learned so that they can learn from each other as well and I was eavesdropping a little bit and one of the women uh, at a table near me had picked up a piece of paper about Emmett Till and she was sharing she had never heard of this person and she didn't know that piece of history and the other people at the table a couple of the other people at the table were like oh I remember that happening mm. it was national news um or, and whereas for me I learned about it by watching history movies and things like that so that's how I learned about Emmett Till um it he might have been taught in school even right, right. for me um But this woman had kind of fallen between those categories. She didn't know about Emmett Till. For her to know about Emmett Till's mother's bravery and her choice to play an active role in making sure that the nation knew what was going on, even at great personal expense to herself, that's an important story for that particular woman to now know so that she can be reminded of what it can look like to be a mother whose grief makes her brave. Mm. I think that's really an important, and the woman who was learning the story was white. It's not that that's one of her biological or even cultural ancestors, but knowing that ancestor gives her some paths forward now in
0: her own commitment to dismantling racism. Yeah, and in her role as a mother. Exactly. You know, it doesn't matter the race. You're still a mother or or child. Um, Yep. And what's your other your other way. You said two ways.
1: Right. So it's interesting because I'm part of a cohort uh, in this program called the Fierce Vulnerability Network, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a great name, right? Fierce Mm -hmm. Vulnerability (laughs) Network. It's a national network of people who are committed to nonviolent direct action at the intersection of uh, racial justice and particularly reparations. Uh, for Black and Indigenous people in particular, and eco justice, the intersection yeah. of those two places. The very first weekend of our cohort, we spent time talking about um, the difference between being in our comfort zone, our stretch zone, and our panic zone. Mm. We talked about how when you get into your panic zone, you become reactive, you become mm-hmm. uh, you become entrenched. It is very hard to discuss things in ways that can shift the dialogue with someone else when we're in our panic zone where we feel very much under threat. Whether it's true or not, that's how we feel and we function out of that. And then we were invited to learn what the tools are to shift oneself from panic zone into stretch zone. So the practice of tapping uh, the practice, the practices that often we learn in response to anxiety attacks, like scan the room, start naming what you see. I see a set of lights over here. I see a, a wall hanging it's red and it's got a uh, sequins on it, you know, to spend time scanning the room and naming what we see, things that'll get us back into our body Right, right when we're in the panic zone right the reason that's relevant to this is the next day after we went through those processes and learned those practices we were invited to look at a gallery of heartbreaking images uh things that had to do with global poverty and 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 the environmental crisis and cruelty to animals that happen in industrial farming and uh, anti-Black racism, we were invited to look at those things and to use the practices that got us back into our comfort zone, because so often we we think that our two options are to absorb that until we get traumatized and overwhelmed in, in our panic zone. Right or to not engage them because they are too much. And we don't really have the luxury of either of those things. I love that there are practical tools to, if we can say, I am committed to knowing what is going on in the world, and I have these tools to make sure I can stay well so that I can be present and show up to people who are even more impacted by by them than I am. You know, I am very much affected by all of the stories about anti-Black racism. But I am affected by them because I care about Black people, not because I am a likely, I am not a, I I will never be a victim of anti-Black racism. Um, So it's important for me to be witness to those stories and engaged in that work because I am one level removed. Yes. Um, And therefore, I need to develop the practices. And for me to know about someone like, is it Mamie Till? I don't remember. Uh, But Mrs. Till, um, for me to know her story and then to realize, oh, there are people who, even though they were directly affected, found ways to be a part of the solution, that's a source of inspiration to me from an ancestor. And I can combine that with very practical tools to stay present and witness without getting shut down uh, emotionally or psychically. I think that matters as well.
0: It ma- yeah. And when you're talking about that, what I was thinking about is how uh, if you're, if you are under threat, mm-hmm. uh, such as Mrs. Till, yeah. you, not only do you have to, you can't just say there's no trauma unless you're going to right. totally give up and then yeah. uh, not have Unless you just totally give up and just say, okay, and and basically live a life of uh, the living dead. Right, 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 right. Completely numbed out. Yes, Completely numbed out. That was not the choice. So I think about that, and I think uh, that is an ancestral um, gift that maybe people that have endured trauma, they've had to not endure it. They've had to be with it. They had to be yeah. present. It wasn't just, they didn't have the luxury of saying, well, you know, I, I basically am left with no skin on my back, but I'm just going to take the day off and not go to the fields because, right. uh, I, I, I have to heal. It's like, That's no, right. it, or it wasn't like, um, well, I'm just so depressed because I have a horrible life. It's like, uh, no, I have kids that I have to take care of. Right. And so I right. think it's that you, that necessity that taught them to be be in the to be with the trauma not make the trauma who they are right which is huge right um, and yet at the same time kind of uh in a way transform that trauma like when i think of transforming trauma i think of like because i i love um meditation silent meditation vipassana meditation yeah and then when i read barbara holmes book about um uh what was it the the joy, her book, something joy, celebration or something. And then she said, uh, when, uh, in the black church, when it, it, the praises of amen, hallelujah, that is their meditation because for years they were silenced, forcibly silenced. Yeah. So that yeah. is their meditation. I went, Oh, so not all med-. So that kind of like transforming yeah. this trauma. Yeah. And, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, maybe that's what we get to bring together because mm-hmm. we all go through trauma i don't care absolutely what what, uh, what race what ancestry we all go through our own trauma yeah and i think it's when you said you said the key word you said anxiety producing and yeah. it's like one of the things that really shocks me and then distresses me is how much of our population is on over-the-counter drugs to reduce anxiety. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's like we cannot. It's like we're so afraid to to be in this life as it is, mm-hmm. and so this anxiety that is everywhere's. We don't know how to like. We don't have. If you don't have the tools, you don't know what to do. Um, I haven't listened to the news for years. I mean, it can be mm-hmm. on, but I just don't listen to it for years. Mm-hmm. I never have. I read the paper. I read it selectively yeah. and then yeah. when the story over me, which it will, I'll just put it aside. And what I was taught is to say, that's a call to prayer. Mm, yeah. So that's how the tool that I use because yeah. otherwise it's like really another day of, you know, and it's just, and I don't want to be uh fragile. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to put it that way. You yeah. Know, the white fragility. I don't want to be, you know, right. like, Oh, Oh, This is just too much for me. It's not too much for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: That's just, and so I'm hearing you and I'm going, this is all the more important to get the ancestry of everyone. Because I don't think people realize, I think uh, people don't realize how they identify as white, realize that it is something that their ancestors created. I don't think that is many, for many people, it's not real. Right, right. So thank you. And one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, because it just always made me feel like, oh, in my fantasies or I don't know, not fantasies, but my daydream um, to have something like the Oakland Peace Center. Yeah, Can you talk a little bit about that before we go? Because I just loved that whole concept.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So in 2006, I started pastoring, uh, tiny little congregation in a very big building. Uh, First Christian Church of Oakland back in the 40s had been a church of 1500 in membership. So they had a 40,000 square foot building. And by 2006, when I came, it was about 10 people in worship on an average Sunday in a 40,000 square foot building. And part of our journey together was discovering that we all had a deep investment in ending violence because so many of us had lost people to violence and we didn't have a lot of energy. So we didn't want to start something from scratch, but we could volunteer with the other organizations that existed to reduce violence in Oakland. And we started building relationships with them and we started, uh, yeah, becoming trustworthy to them, even though we were church folks. Uh, And about three or four years in, we got together with about 20 different nonprofits that were in various ways connected to creating peace and said, hey, we don't have any money. We don't really have very many people, but we have this space. Do you think it would be useful if we turned into, turned this into a collective for all of the folks doing peace work in Oakland? And they began to imagine what that could look like and how we could show up for each other and what would be the advantages of it. And that was kind of the birth of the Oakland Peace Center, which, is, uh, which meant s- some of those organizations moved their offices in, about a dozen of them. Uh, some of them used our event space. And some of them just showed up when we had partners events so we could deepen relationship with each other and find ways to collaborate with each other. And the Oakland Peace Center just... Uh, on Martin Luther King Day celebrated their 11th anniversary. Wow. Uh, so it's been around for a while now and I have not been involved in it for, I, I wrapped up as ED the end of 2020 and did a little consulting work, but I haven't been uh, part of the staff in any way since the end of 2021 and they're still going strong and hoping to build affordable housing on uh-huh. uh, the property as well as rehab the building.
0: And didn't they also like offer different classes and things like, like,
1: well, this is the thing about having all of those partners. It means that we had, you know, civic engagement trainings for seniors. It meant that we had lawyers for black lives events. It meant that we had the very first conversations that gave birth to the fierce vulnerability network happened in our space, healing retreats for black organizers who were just so had poured all of themselves into the streets. Uh, in the Wake of Michael Brown's Murder and Long Beyond That. Uh, all of those things. Uh, Dharma Punks uh, used to do their meditation groups <laughs> I there. <know> Dharma
0: Punks. <laughs> yep,
1: yep. I just bumped into one of their members at another event for organizers uh, just this past fall. So all of these amazing things got to happen and we got to show up for each other's work and be,
0: be healed by each other's work too. I love it. Yeah, I just, because there's so many, and especially in urban pop in urban cities like Los Angeles and other like San yeah. Francisco, so many of these old churches that are like yep. that, that could yep. be used absolutely in a way that would be community building. Exactly. So, so we're almost done. Do you want to last words before you share your beautiful gift with us of a poem? <laughs> I
1: think, um, I think that's all I've got to say for now. I think, um, do not be overwhelmed in good doing, I think is a really good thing to remember. I re- I really love that phrase because um, it reminds us to seek resources to refresh ourselves. Mm. But it also reminds us that what we're supposed to be doing is the work of good. Mm. So do not be overwhelmed or do not despair in good doing, I think is the last thing I would want to uh, share with folks.
0: Thank you. I can take that to heart. Thank you.
1: Oh, I love that. So yeah, I did want to share uh, at the end of our time together. My My little anti-oppression consulting firm is called Without Fear Consulting. And people often think it's just a reference to, we need to be bold, we need to be, but it's funny because the very first time I told my friend Anirvan that I had decided to call it Without Fear Consulting, and I was about to explain to him why, he's like, yeah, no, I know, uh, because the poet Rabindranath Tagore is from the region of India that my friend Anirvan and I are both from, um, and he legendarily wrote the poetry collection Gitanjali, and my favorite poem from that very, very sacred uh, text is, is often referred to as where the mind is without fear. Mm. Um, he was not just a poet. He was a revolutionary uh, for Indian independence. Mm. And so I think of this as a an activist and organizer's prayer for their country, whichever country it is.
0: I love this.
1: So here's how it goes where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depth of truth, where tireless striving stretches its arms toward perfection, where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sand of dead habit, For the mind is led forward by thee into ever-widening thought and action, into that heaven of freedom, my father,
0: let my country awake. Oh, thank you. Shonda, thank you so much. It was such a gift to be with you, friend. It's such a gift to be with you, and I look forward to another book, another podcast. Yay! Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Listen Up, Listen In. For more information about our guest, Shonda Jha, you can go to her website at shondajha.com. That is S A N D H Y A J H A.com. And you can go to learn more about our upcoming guests and previous guests at ListenUpListenIn.com. That's l i s t e n l i s t e n u pcom Thank you and look forward to more conversations.